It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Murder Mile. This is Grosvenor Gate in Hyde Park, W2. A short walk south of the strangulation of homeless man Mark Morrison. A few streets west of the terrorist attack on the flight crew of LL16. The last night of fun by the bloody butler. And a very public beheading in Park Lane. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated between Knightsbridge, Bayswater and Mayfair, High Park is one of several royal parks open to the public, Quiet on set. but also used for filming movies. And action. Many scenes have been shot here. For films like Cold War thriller The Ipcris Files, Zombie Flick 28 Weeks Later, the first film about Glyndor Michael in The Man Who Never Was, and my personal favourite, Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. I don't know if you know it, but, but you're my type of woman. Movies cost millions, but a single shot can be ruined by an extra. All background artiste, thank you. Who mimes talking like a fish drowning, walks like their proctologist forgot to cut his nails, and ends each scene with the hilarious quip, That's a wrap. I shall be in my trailer. By which, they mean toilet. And yet some of the greatest horrors to have happened here weren't fiction, but fact. On the eastern edge currently sits Grosvenor Gate. On the night of Tuesday the 23rd of October 1928, a constable's torchlight spotted two bodies splayed on the grass. Drenched in blood, with their throats slit, he believed their deaths were a double suicide. And although proven untrue, the killer's motive would not come from love nor hate, but from the twisted mind of the master of horror. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 175. 
London, after midnight. One hundred years on, it's hard for modern audiences to appreciate the power of the silent horror films of the 1920s. Still in its infancy, cinema was a revelation. But as most films and its directors spawned from the theatres, many resulting films were stale and flat. Ignited by the greats of German Expressionism, the early 1920s saw an explosion of groundbreaking horror masterpieces, which still chill the blood even today. With no sound, except for maybe a live organ, it was the director's vision and the actor's performance which took the audience from a passive spectator to a willing victim whose life was in their hands. Released during pre-code cinema, in an era before scissor-wielding censors sliced up celluloid of any scene deemed unacceptable to the moral prudes, 1920s horrors were shocking and raw. Every horror movie requires a victim to be sacrificed. And ours was Julia Mangan. Born in 1907, Julia was raised in the windswept wilds of Glengariff, a small isolated village in the Bera Peninsula of County Cork, on the far southwest coast of Ireland. Translated as Rough Glen, it was as remote as any settlement. As amidst a dense dark forest, Small farms pockmarked the land. As ahead lay the violent swells of the Atlantic Ocean, a foreboding sea of shipwrecks and drowned souls. As a small girl, with pale white skin like an anemic ghost, and flame-red hair like the fires of hell. For Julia, coming from a large Irish family, whose parents had always strived to keep their brood clothed and fed. She was keen to do what was right and take the burden from their shoulders. As her older brother Patrick had done just a few years before, keen to find her feet, to experience life, and to earn an honest crust to send back monies to aid her parents, Julia moved to London. Arriving in August 1927, 21-year-old Julia quickly found work as a domestic servant at 35 Stanhope Gardens. Living in a small basement bedroom, which she shared with the housemaid Mary Lee. Although the hours were long and the pay was modest, she was well-liked as she was always pleasant and positive. In her spare time, Julia explored this chaotic metropolis of light and sound. Her mouth agape, and her eyes wide to this new world of wonder. Fast cars, instant foods, high fashion, 
and the latest films. Surrounding the eternal sprawl of Piccadilly Circus were a wealth of picture houses. As a hopeless romantic, she often sat with a heavy heart, watching tragic tales of love and loss unfold. Recent hits were The Flesh and the Devil with Greta Garbo and John Gilbert, Sunrise and Seventh Heaven with Janet Gaynor, and although a horror flick which wasn't her thing, the 1923 hit The Hunchback of Notre Dame, starring horror maestro Lon Chaney as Quasimodo, the mangled beast in the bell tower, and Patsy Ruth Miller as Esmeralda, the big-hearted girl who sees beyond his deformity to find true love. For Julia, the summer of 1928 was an exciting time to be alive. One year after her arrival, she would find love. Three weeks after that, she would be dead. It may be hard for modern audiences to accept, but there was no actor quite like Long Cheney. In the silent era, where the films were soundless, and the score was often played by an old deer on a tuneless organ, interpreting the film's action into emotion, having never seen it before. As a human chameleon, able to contort every inch of his body into a beast before your eyes, Cheney was a god and a monster. Nicknamed the Man of a Thousand Faces, not only was Lon Chaney a gifted actor who endured pain to create truly jaw-dropping characters, as in the 1920 film The Penalty, when he strapped his lower legs behind his thighs to portray a double-leg amputee, but he also created his own makeup. Portraying Eric in the 1925 horror classic The Phantom of the Opera, his hollow, skull-like appearance was so shocking that audiences fainted, many fled, and some of the more sensitive patrons were supposedly committed to asylums. His face is an image so grotesque, it still has the power to shock, even today. Every horror movie requires a villain to be feared. And ours was Robert Williams. Born on the 28th of December, 1899, in Tannybrack in Carnarvonshire, North Wales, Robert Williams came into being as Robert Owen Jones, the illegitimate son of Lizzie Jones, a struggling single mother. Stemming from a family where insanity was a cruel curse from God. Unable to cope, and having fled to Canada, aged just three months old, Robert was put up for adoption. As an average lad of normal features, five foot seven, 
pale skin, dark brown hair and blue eyes. He was as liked as any other boy. Educated at Garn Council School, he left age 14 and entered into the trades. Age 14 to 19 as a farm labourer. 19 to 21 as an apprentice joiner on the Welsh Highland and Festiniog Railway. And he continued as a carpenter for the rest of his life. Cursed by moments when this boy seemed peculiar. This was not unusual as insanity ran rampant in his family. Two cousins were committed for life to the North Wales Asylum. One was described as an imbecile since childhood. And two had taken their own lives, aged just 18 and 14. Age 14. Gripped in an inexhaustible gloom, Robert tried to end his pain by throwing himself against the hind legs of a horse. A kick which could crush his skull and break his neck. But miraculously, he survived. Diagnosed with neurothenia, an ill-defined condition resulting in fatigue, headaches, paranoia, and violent mood swings. Although plagued with a mental abnormality, he could not be certified as insane. On the 24th of March, 1927, at Carnarvon Quarter Sessions, Robert Williams was acquitted of the indecent assault of a young woman. Little is known about this incident, but unable to deal with the shame, he fled to London. As a 27-year-old joiner, Robert lodged at 50 Robert Street in Camden. He worked on various building sites across the West End. He visited pubs with his new pals. And just like Julia, who he was yet to meet, he entertained himself with trips to the cinema. Robert loved horrors. That queasy feeling of trepidation as your palms sweat, your heart pumps, and the putrid pit of your stomach lurches and churns, as a phantom of unbridled terror stalks your senses. Released in the UK under the title of The Hypnotist and directed by Todd Browning, who later shot Dracula and Freaks. London After Midnight was a silent horror about a spooky old house, haunted by the eternally stalking vampire of its long-dead owner. For maximum chills, the horror maestro Lon Chaney had widened his eyes and his lips with hidden wires to give his face a maniacal grimace. Projected from the dark onto a 50-foot screen, his unblinking stare and bared fangs are an evil mix of terrifying and hypnotizing, as if he is luring you to your death. Robert had seen the film 
only once. But for the rest of his life, it would torture his soul. The relationship of Julia and Robert began under uncertain circumstances. The exact date is unknown, but a year after her arrival in London, 21-year-old Julia Mangan was introduced by her roommate Mary Lee to a 27-year-old Welsh carpenter called either Walter Ellis or Walter Mills. Why Robert used an alias is a mystery, but maybe being shamed of his past, he was hiding the truth. There was no doubt that Julia liked him. He wasn't handsome, but he was cute. He was sometimes funny, but also serious. And although he skirted the facts of his past, his emotion was refreshingly honest. It's a romantic notion that inside every beast, a monster doesn't always lurk. Only Robert's deformity was not upon his skin, but in his soul and in his brain. On the 10th of October 1928, one week into their love and just two weeks before her death, with his work erratic, Robert lost his job as a carpenter. With no job and no wage, he risked losing his lodging. Only as a man who was haunted by the spectre of his past, what he feared most was loneliness. With no work to occupy his time, he drank. Supping to soothe his sickness, the drink didn't aid his ailments, and lost in liquor, he could no longer trust his own senses. As even when he was awake, in the many months since, he had seen regular visions of a ghastly face and a ghostly voice which goaded him. On Saturday the 20th of October 1928, one week before, being hungry and spent, as the harrowing spirit haunted his adult mind. Robert tried to end his torment by ripping apart his throat with a razor. Unable to hold his blade straight, Robert had failed, and in doing so, displeased the voice who only he could hear. Wherever she went, like an icy wind howling down an unlit alley, it sent shivers down her spine, knowing that he was always behind. Whenever she worked, like a havoc-making gremlin, doors were knocked and doorbells rang. And even when she tried to sleep, 
like the bumps and crashes of a lonely poltergeist who demanded her undivided attention. He would never give her peace. On Sunday the 21st of October at 8.10pm, although it was against the rules to have any male friends in her quarters, in her basement bedroom at 25 Stanhope Gardens, Patrick and his girlfriend Hannah came by, only to find Julia crying and Robert blind drunk and collapsed on the bed, muttering incoherently. With his eyes as wide as a werewolf's gaze, just minutes before seeing the moon, and his mouth as bloody as a vampire's kiss after feeding, having gashed his head and mouth in a drunken stumble, Robert didn't look like he was in this world or the next, but trapped in a twilight of misery. Knowing how fragile he was, Julia needed to find the right words to break it to Robert gently. Only their parting words would never come from her lips or even his, but those of Lon Chaney. As a domestic servant, Tuesday the 23rd of October 1928 was a typical day for Julia Mangan. She cleaned, she dusted, she washed the sheets, and with her duties done, she finished her shift at 7pm. She had a bite to eat, she got dressed, she told Mary Lee, I'm going out for a breath of fresh air, and at 8.15pm, she left. Robert's day was as different to Julia's as night is today. Being bored, having sunk enough booze to sink a battleship, it wasn't the beer in his gut which haunted his brain. As every time he blinked, that face grimaced, those eyes glared, and that voice goaded. It didn't care about his feelings. All it wanted was his troubled boy lying silently in a grave. His gizzard slit from ear to ear as his last breath bubbled through the spewing entrails of his sliced up throat. Hearing only the deep endless throbbing from inside his head and its ceaseless witterings inside his ear, like the scuttling of beetles digging into his brain. As if on cue, in his jacket pocket, Robert fingered the blade of his razor, the final act of his life to be a river of blood seeping from his neck. Neither Julia nor Robert had spoken to anyone of their plans that night. Whether they had agreed to meet, 
or he had followed her to a familiar place. Nobody knows. But they would soon meet for one last time. The scene was set. Hyde Park. One of the few places a person can feel truly alone and isolated amidst the rippling chaos of London streets. It is darkness, shadows and silence. As an ancient hunting ground, blood has soaked every inch of its soil and every tree has soaked up the juices of death. The time was set, 10pm, more than four hours since the sun had set, and with a vague hint of moon obscured by a blanket of foreboding clouds. The night was dark as the sky brooded gloomily. Being too far from the lights of Park Lane to be illuminated, the twosome sat apart on an old wooden bench, bathed in nothing but the darkness and the cold. To both Robert and Julia, this was to be their last goodbye. Their love affair was over. Only they both saw it ending in two very different ways. Robert would state, We sat down and talked for a bit. I said I was going to give up drink, and that sometimes I felt I could not give up. He had tried many times in the past, but he had always failed. Julia said, I will pray for you. God can do nothing unless you do it for yourself. As a Catholic, this was typical of her kindness, believing there was goodness in everyone and giving a hint of hope to follow. Only Robert's demon wasn't booze, but his brain. My head was then getting troublesome. Thoughts came into my mind. I felt my head getting fuller and fuller. It seemed to be steaming at both sides, like a red-hot iron being pushed inside my head. I thought I was in a room, and a man was standing in the corner, pulling faces at me. He shouted at me, that he had got me where he wanted me. Goading Robert and tormenting his soul, as it had done in the several months since. Before him was the face, the voice and the eyes of Lon Chaney. As real as the sweat on his own palm and the razor within, like a scene from London After Midnight, the horror maestro stood before Robert. His ghoulish eyes, bulging as if the devil himself was gouging them out with his sinister thumbs, and his grimmest mouth goading him to kill. 
those famished fangs, seeing his trembling flesh, as not enough of a feast to sate its hunger, for the tormented boy's bleeding heart. Inside the mind of this disturbed man, as the epitome of terror personified, Lon Chaney was here. Found between the path and the horse track, the first body found was Julia's. Face down and curled up, her left hand still clutched at her throat, as a deep gash had ripped apart her flesh and drained her lungs of her last breath. An ambulance was called, but she was declared dead at the scene. Nearby lay Robert. Found 36 feet away, as if he had tried to flee but failed. Robert was found face down, his back turned and his throat slit. In his left hand lay the bloody razor, giving us no mystery as to who had murdered Julia Mangan. And yet in his right hand, he held a letter. It was addressed to Julia, written by her mother. The envelope was open, and yet its contents were never disclosed. Discovered in a serious condition, but miraculously still alive, Robert was rushed to nearby St. George's Hospital. He was operated upon, and being discharged a week later, he was arrested for her murder. Examined by Dr. Watson, no evidence of insanity or epilepsy was found. And when recounting the incident, Robert didn't mention being terrified by a face. When interviewed by Dr. East, he appeared emotional and depressed, but did recall seeing the face of Long Cheney. And when examined by Dr. Karen Woods, it was believed that Robert had suffered from an episode of epileptic automatism, a seizure of the frontal lobe, where the patient is lucid, but unaware of their actions, as if they are sleepwalking. Declared sane, and with a scarf covering the scar on his neck. On Wednesday the 9th of January 1929, at the Old Bailey, he pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. Summing up, Mr Justice Humphreys asked the jury, I do not know whether you have seen London After Midnight, in which Lon Chaney acted, but he left the weight of the case up to the jury to decide. Was Robert insane and guided by the terrifying memory of a horror actor in a film? Or was he sane and merely using the idea of a vision as an excuse? Having initially failed to reach a verdict, they found him guilty of murder. But given an appeal, his execution was later commuted 
to a life of penal servitude. Julia's body was returned to her grieving family in Ireland. And while serving his sentence, Robert later died in prison with his throat slit. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Oh, oh, hello everyone. Oh, let's hope that recorded okay. Oh, that second, that was second attempt on that one. Oh, bloody windows, bloody windows, bloody Bill Gates, whoever is the twat that did it. Oh, God. Uh, welcome to Extra Mile, unscripted, unedited, blah, blah, blah. Uh, how long did it take me to do that? That was longer than expected. Um, yeah, I got the new laptop all set up. It's all going well. Old laptop is still being having to ship off for China for bits uh because uh because the the company that makes it are, are twats basically but um i got a new laptop and then i, was, I recorded this about uh, a couple of days ago and then when i listened to it, it was all horrible and tinny and horrible and I, I spent days trying to find out the problem and it's bloody windows 10 there's a there's a thing called uh an audio enhancer that they put on all of your your speakers and everything to make it sound a little bit better but when you're recording podcasts and things like this it just makes it sound tinny and hollow so it's it took ages to find this little button where you have to press like a you have to deselect one little thing and you just think how would i even know that that's even there you bastards oh so i've done it so hopefully this sounds better i had recorded it before but it just it, it just sounded a little bit it just didn't sound right and i'd rather i'd rather redo everything and take my time than uh, have it sound shit Oh, right, let me let me go and pop on a a quaffy, a quaffy, a C W A F F E E quaffy. Uh, oh, how is everyone? Are we all good? We all good and well and happy and uh, everyone doing their thing, doing the thing. That's good. 
that's good that's what life's all about doing your thing oh don't worry about a thing right coming back oh so what else is going on in the world um went to our mate's barbecue the other day that was nice even though we were creeped out by uh the uh my friend's uh dad uh who recently passed away uh had bought her daughter uh a little dolly for christmas like two years ago and the dolly basically doesn't exist anymore because it was a cheapy dolly um uh, unfortunately the only thing that does exist is this dismembered arm of the creepy dolly and it's really weird it's like every time you look around creepy creepy doll's arm would turn up at the barbecue it was really really weird it's like they, they are almost certain they got rid of it a couple of days ago and then it just reappeared so um we were having a good old giggle about old creepy arm so there we go uh what else is going on we've got the london show coming up so uh, myself uh, adam from uk true crime uh, and paul from true crime enthusiast obviously we've got the glasgow dates coming up at end of june uh, as always link in the show notes if you can make it to glasgow we're doing it at the bargain price of 12 pounds we, we the three of us sat down before we even decided on the content of the show we said what is value for money and we thought a two-hour show, 12 quid, not bad. Also, we'll do a meet-up beforehand and a meet-and-greet afterwards as well. So, do you know, a bit of fun there. Um, I've got the London date sorted. Uh, we're going to be posting those soon. I'm just waiting on Paul because he's doing the Manchester date. And we, we want to post them all together. But So, Manchester will probably be end of July. Uh, um, when is London? I think it's end of August, I think. we got a while on that one. So, that's fine. So, that's going to be exciting. Um, next week, uh, not going to be a regular Murder Mile episode because I've got to finish doing the... Uh, I spent the last the last while, doing a couple of months, doing all the research for the rest of this year. But what I now need to do is go through all the research that I've got, kind of compile it into a little, little bit of a Bible so I can work out the chronology of everything. That takes time. So the next two weeks, I'm going to... I'm rolling out something interesting so not quite new blue new blue was interesting that was with police constable arsenal guinness which was really good hoping pcag that we can do some more of those soon that'd be lovely we'll have some more beers my coffee's about to go um there we go uh, lovely um but so yeah next two weeks uh coming back coming back next two weeks doing uh doing uh, a, a little chat i, I did a, a series of uh, short interviews with two friends who are detectives so uh, i just wanted to dive into it kind of it, it was going to be kind of like a new blue idea but it kind of that idea worked well with Paul. It didn't work well this way, but I've I've kind of found a way to make it kind of interesting. So, yeah, it'll be two, just a two-part series about chats with detectives. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. Um, big thank you this week to uh, my new Patreon supporters, who are Mark Dubois and Stephen Douglas. I thank you both. Thank you for becoming a Patreon supporters. Hope you, hope you enjoy all the goodies that are on there. Lots of goodies to enjoy. And there's loads in the back history as well, because I've been doing these since, I think it's episode 50, might be earlier, I'm not too sure, but uh, have a look. Anyway, as always, this is Extra Mile. Um, so let's do some quiz questions, then we'll dive into some extra stuff about this uh, particular case. 
Whew, right, don't forget, as always, I might balls up some of these questions or they might get edited out. So there we go. Question number one. What was the UK title of London After Midnight? Question number two. Julia. Question number two. Julia came from Glen Gareth. But what does that translate as? Question number three. What was the name of Julia's flatmate? Question number four, except for Lon Chaney, name one of the three other stars mentioned who Julia saw at the cinema. Ooh, burpees. Question number five, what was Lon Chaney's nickname? Question number six, what was the name of Robert Williams' birth mother? Question number seven, aged 14... How did Robert try to kill himself? Question number eight. Todd Browning, who directed London After Midnight, also directed two other famous horror movies. One of which was good, one of which is not particularly good. Uh, question number nine. What did Robert do as a job? And question number ten. What was the name of Julia's brother? There we go. So, um... With this episode, I was going to dive into a big discussion about uh, the kind of the medical side of uh, what was going on in court. But I felt it was more interesting to just just look at kind of what happened and kind of Robert's mindset at the moment. But so there were quite a few. um, The jury had a real problem with this because... Obviously, like in the case of Joe Ganane that we did ages ago, where the jury kind of had a real different, a real conundrum where the the, the judge had said, you need to decide when uh, with, uh, his uh, diminished responsibility started and ended. Was it the drugs or was it him? In this case, they were like, um, is he really seeing visions or is he just making this up? So there was quite a few medical kind of specialists there. One medical specialist didn't turn up at some point. So that kind of really stymied the case. So this got actually dragged out for longer than it was. Um, so for the uh, in court, Mr. Peregrine, who I believe was the defence, uh, on the question of insanity, um, said that this was going to be the most difficult problem in that case. Um, Robert Williams would say that uh, if he killed the girl, he did not remember it. Uh, He said that he was uh, subject to epileptic fits, although, as we recall at the start, there was no history of epilepsy in the family. But that doesn't mean he didn't develop epilepsy because, you know, it it doesn't just happen. Sometimes it just sometimes it can just you just find that you have it. Or as we've as we saw with the John Esmond Murphy episode, he had uh, petty mal seizures, so he didn't realise that he was epileptic, but he had the the kind of the micro seizures. So there's there's more than just one type of epilepsy. Um, what was uh, in court? Mr. Justice Swift said, "You have said that many people of high intelligence are going about their work, uh, although they are suffering from epilepsy." Are you suggesting that they might commit suicide tomorrow? This was to Dr. Karen Woods. Dr. Woods said, I do not say that, uh, but many people are subject to periods of automatism. So this is the uh, epileptic automatism uh, in which they are completely irresponsible. 
There are many thousands of persons suffering from delusion, delusional insanity who are doing their work quite well. Uh, it would not be wise to put them in an institution or deprive them of liberty unless they've showed a tendency to commit some homicidal or dangerous acts. Uh, now, with Robert, he does have uh, acts. He's not a violent person, but he has tried to kill himself many times before. Um, and we have the incident, the indecent assault on a girl uh back in wales now we don't know any more about that i tried to dig deep into that there was literally nothing it was as vague as there is so it looks like it went to a, a pro, pro uh, kind of a, a local court and then it kind of got thrown out because there wasn't enough information um it was believed that the the girl uh it was the girl's father who had tried to take this all the way to court and in the end the girl who he had assaulted i have to use in inverted commas because uh, we don't know what the assault was um uh she pulled out so that the trial couldn't go ahead uh, uh with robert he said he doesn't remember the 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 attack at all on uh, julie he said the last thing i remember was julia whistling which was something that she'd do when she was nervous uh she uh, be, um it was unlikely that she was whistling for help because she would have screamed. But uh, she, they were they, they were only about 30, 40 feet away from uh, Park Lane, so not too far away. He says, I do not remember using the razor. I had no intention of hurting her. Uh, as mentioned, she was uh, kind of huddled up. She was kind of in a fetal position, face down, her left hand clutching her throat. She was wearing kind of white uh, gloves at the time. That one was absolutely saturated in blood. Um, I think I do have the autopsy down here. Um, Dr. Henry Bright Weir, good name, uh, he said the murder weapon was a an old-fashioned razor. This was found in uh, Will, uh, Robert's uh, hand. Uh, nearby was her handbag. Her handbag was open. No money had been taken, but in there was the letter. Uh, now, this was on Robert. It was addressed to Julia. It was bearing an Irish stamp. And the postmark was from uh, Julia's mother, their hometown. So it had been sent from her mother, but we don't know what the contents was. Um, um, weirdly, Robert and Julia wore, were 11 metres apart, which is about 36 feet. Now, uh, that's roughly the length of a bus. So you'd expect if they were, if he kind of loved her and he wanted to die with her, you'd expect him to slit her throat and then wrap himself in her arms if he loved her and... Uh, all that and then slit his throat so they could die together always oh, in that romantic um but he doesn't he's 36 feet away he's facing the other way as if he's run away so we don't know whether he attempted to slit her throat the pathologist said uh that the wounds were extensive and a lot of force was used so he'd he'd, he'd slit her throat quite deeply but obviously cutting your own throat is an entirely different thing because the second you put the blade into your throat uh, or anywhere near your throat you're going to feel pain and your body's going to naturally react to that so uh he he did have a a wound to his throat but it didn't go into any of the kind of the uh he, he suffered a lot of blood loss uh but it didn't go into his windpipe didn't hurt any of the major arteries or or anything like that so uh so he survived um was it was it intentional we don't know uh 10 10 p.m pc john green pc 113a was on duty um hyde park uh this is uh the marble arch itself was being used as a police station at that point we do have the main police station hyde park police station where 
the the police officer that we covered before who who uh, was stabbed to death by the homeless man that's that's about quarter of a mile away uh but this is the kind of the nearest one because it's near it's right on the corner of oxford street and park lane so kind of a key place to have a, a little bit of a small police station uh he rushed there hearing uh, about a couple who'd passed out in the park um he turned up and said there was a, a man the woman lying on the grass apparently ill with blood stains around them so even at night time there's no lights there he could see that there was blood stains around uh, uh he uh a short distance away was a robert with a razor in his hand um a large cut to his throat nearby was the body of julia now he said that she was dead at that point he kind of checked her pulse but there was nothing going on there um the uh, ambulance turned up and conveyed them both to hosp- hospital to st george's uh this is the original st george's hospital uh which was on the corner of park lane so basically where the dorchester is right now that's the hospital that i always get them confused with uh because there was another st george's and there was also another st thomas's as well which makes researching quite difficult uh, uh they were both taken to st george's uh to pc hollins who was uh, the officer conveying them uh robert said i did it she had been teasing me um at that point he was moved to the operating theater uh, she was already dead by that point and he was described as being in a serious condition but he was discharged on the 28th of october so that's five days later uh dr weir said julia had uh, an, a large incision across the neck uh, involving the main veins on both sides her wounds extended four or five inches to the right of the midline and two inches to the left it was a clean cut completely cutting through the mastoid muscle and uh, completely severing the internal jugular vein the antero uh, lateral spinal of the fifth vertical fifth cervical vertebrae was cut and the cause of death was hemorrhage to the throat so that's how deep it was it got right down to the spine uh the body was identified by her flatmate whose name i will not mention because that is uh, one of the quiz questions well done michael and the pathologist confirmed that her throat wound was not self-inflicted um 24th of october so that's the next day at 1 10 p.m robert uh he briefly uh, made a confession to pc hollins as just mentioned there uh, um what else we got what else we got uh, wh- when released he was taken to cannon road police station and uh questioned and then to a marlborough street police court where he stated his name and he was placed on remand uh he marble street police court he was there wearing a blue serge suit and wore a muffler around his neck to hide the scar uh of which he had cut his own throat uh let's see if we can find the medical evidence was kind of confusing for the audience because they had three medical experts as mentioned and they all kind of had different theories about what had happened and what hadn't happened this is the problem is it's like problems with your brain is not the same as a broken leg a broken leg is a broken leg you can see it but if you got a problem with your brain how do you prove that uh so dr east the medical inspector of prisons for england and wales uh, said that he had interviewed williams three times in prison he found him emotional and unstable liable to tax attacks of depression and addicted to alcohol but could not find a reason to suppose that he was epileptic uh what 
else do we have uh there was a suggestion that maybe the excess of alcohol may have caused some kind of seizure uh inside his brain there's also a belief that uh excess of alcohol may have caused hallucinations as well don't forget this is an era when um uh obviously the 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 water and the alcohol that's used in in our booze uh is heavily regulated uh whereas back then pretty much anyone could be a brewer and you could use whatever you like really so uh so who knows who knows what he was drinking and maybe being poor maybe he was drinking something that wasn't particularly good for him um uh, epileptic automatism so let's try and see what this is uh, an epileptic automatism is defined medically as a cla- as a state of clouding of consciousness which occurs during or immediately after a seizure during which the individual retains control of posture and muscle tone but performs simple or complex movements without being aware of what is happening the most common automatisms are at least in temporal lobe epilepsy are oral as in lip smacking chewing or swallowing or manual meaning picking fumbling or patting uh, i was going to dive into some other things but there there have been some cases throughout history where uh th- this kind of uh, uh epileptic automatism has been kind of used as a defense by people who have caused caused death in other places i won't go into those because it means doing a whole back history on them but uh there was one in 1963 uh, a young man strangled and killed a young woman who he was then giving a lift he dumped her body on the side of the road and drove home uh and they said this was kind of um uh the automatism automatism um so wednesday the 9th of january 1929 at the old bailey before mr justice humphreys robert williams pleaded pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder um what else the jury disagreed on the question on of sanity they were directed by the judge and again retired they again disagreed and they were discharged um and on the case uh, the case was postponed until the next session which was for a, a retrial that was on uh, the 21st of december 1928 um this is this is why it took so long this is why it kind of went to court and then it was like we had to wait until uh, the january of 2029 uh the initial trial was made more difficult as the house surgeon for st george's hospital was too ill to attend mr peregrine defending said the absence of the doctor placed him in a difficulty as the defense was one of insanity the doctor was only uh, the doctor was the own was the only uh, observer who could who sp- could speak of the prisoner's mind at the time he suggested that the doctor's deposition should not be read uh, uh, as he could not be cross-examined and the judge agreed so they uh, had to wait for a, a retrial on that one unfortunately it does happen uh 10th of january 1929 which was the sentencing robert became pale when the sentence was pronounced uh mr justice humphrey said i do not know whether you have seen any film in which lon cheney acted one of them we are told is the hunchback in notre dame and london after midnight if any of you members of the jury have seen the latter or even the advertisements on what mr lon cheney looks like uh, when he is not acting in the film you may agree it is enough to terrify anybody uh, it is the story of a haunted house and Long Cheney takes the part of a person, really a detective, who pretends to be a most terrifying ghost. If the accused saw that film, you may not think it remarkable. 
or as in uh, any way indicating insanity that should, in a moment of emotional excitement, remember the horrifying, terrible aspect of the of an actor in a part in which he was. Uh, my brain's forgotten how to read. Purpose, purposely. Why could I not read the word purposely? Purpose uh, in a part in which he was purposely being terrible. I can myself see nothing in this vision to suggest that the accused was epileptic, which is kind of bad. You really you shouldn't have a judge giving their opinion. Uh, their job is to kind of marshal everyone, not to say I don't think he was epileptic. But there we go. Um, Robert Williams was found guilty and sentenced to death, but this was commuted by the Secretary of State to uh, a period of penal servitude. So there we go. There we go. Was it so? Was he? Uh, was he insane? Did he see visions that forced him to kill, or was he using it as an excuse? We shall never know. We shall never know. Right. Let's do those quiz questions. Question number one. What was the UK title of London After Midnight? It was The Hypnotist. Question two. Julia came from Glengariff, but what does that translate as? Well, it's an easy one because half of it's in the title already. Uh, it translates as Rough Glen. Question number three. What was the name of Julia's flatmate? It was Mary Lee. Question number four. Except for Lon Chaney, name one of three other stars mentioned who Julia saw at the cinema. They were Greta Garbo, John Gilbert and Janet Gaynor. Question five. What was Lon Chaney's nickname? He was the man of a thousand faces. Question number six. What was the name of Robert Williams' birth mother? was Lizzie Jones. Question number seven, age 14, how did Robert try to kill himself? He threw himself against the hind legs of a horse. Question number eight, Todd Browning, who directed London After Midnight, also directed two other famous horror movies. What are they? <sighs> they were Dracula with Bela Lugosi and Freaks. Freaks is good. It's uh, unnerving and a lot of... But there was a big protest because uh, they use a lot of circus performers in that and a lot of people, even in that era, objected to it and it got taken off the cinemas. You've got Dracula with Bela Lugosi in it, which is all right, but it's a bit crap. It's a bit long-winded. There is, if you go searching for it, they shot two versions at the same time using the same set but not the same actors. There's the uh, the American version and a Spanish version. And there's even, if you look online, there's a comparison shot between the two directors. Same set, same props. Todd Browning's version is really staging and really shit. The Spanish version is really good, really good. But we rarely get to see that. Uh, question number nine. Uh, what did Robert do as a job? Uh, he was a carpenter. And question number ten. What was the name of Julia's brother? It was Patrick course it was he's irish i say that because i have irish family and pretty much everyone is called kevin barry or patrick 
so <laughs> which makes it really confusing because they have to call each other by different names and you, you, you half the time you're like which 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 one are you talking about because i don't know i don't know anyway that's that done oh so don't forget next week is not uh, regular episodes of Murder Mile. It will be the 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 two detective ones. So I hope you enjoy those. And then we'll be back with another another run of ten, twelve, fifteen, whatever. And then and then a little gap. Hopefully, hopefully we can do some new blues. PCAG. That'd be lovely if we can come back. I I've got the Guinness on on chill at the moment. Uh, and then we'll do a run right up until kind of Christmas. And then that's us for the year. Phew. Right thank you to everyone to, for listening to murder mile hope you enjoyed it and uh we shall speak again stay safe uh lots of love everyone be good bye bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.